Would you please take your Bible with me to Hebrews chapter 4 as we look this morning at verses 11 through 13 I, I want to uh, acknowledge they, I, think, I think a great ministry of God to our patience is our own errors um, and so that's an ongoing work for me um, last Sunday morning I came into the office to finalize my notes and read over context, had my Bible open and my notes were in front of me and I was reading over context and I read Hebrews chapter 4 and at about 7.42 last Sunday morning, I went oh, there are three verses there that I skipped and went to verse 14 and some of you in the room went, yeah we know and some of you just went wait, you did what? <laughs> I skipped three verses. And so, uh, we are coming back to those verses. I had a friend say, well, I, I read over them and thought, well, it doesn't seem like a particularly hard passage that we would want to skip. <laughs> no, I didn't skip it because it's hard, and we'll come back to it today. Now, as the Word of God is, um, coming back to it has its benefits. As we've already seen, verses 14 through the end of the chapter coming back to these verses is helpful, and I hope you'll see uh, a way that we can conclude it more clearly because we've already spent time in verses 14 through 16. So today, let's rectify this error and read verse 11 through 13, Hebrews chapter 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You can be seated. The children can make their way to Children's Church this morning. We intend in this text to see the reliability and the sufficiency of the living and active Word of God. The title for the sermon is The Sufficiency of the Word of God. In this text, what I want to help you see is that we are crossing a bridge. Not so much a modern bridge with limited elevation and descent, but an old bridge an old wood bridge. And it's built with kind of that triangle structure of architecture. So it's, it's built with a steep incline and then a peak and then a steep descent. And we, in this section, are standing at the top of the bridge, making our way down to the other side. So that, that's what I want you to see. You can see that old river. It's not very wide. But the bridge across it is very steep, has a very high pinnacle in the middle. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, we're told, let us strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Striving to enter the rest. And that's a verb. It's instruction. You should strive 
How? What would be enough striving for arriving finally at our heavenly rest? What would be enough striving? But yet we're told to strive. Run. Press on. Go hard. Strive after. All right. All this is in light of the warning that we've been studying. Hebrews chapter 3, look at verse 7. The Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, also known as, if you hear the Word of God, don't harden your heart. The people in that generation of rebellion, they did on the day they were tested in the wilderness. That's the warning. It's happened before. There were people that not, did not strive by faith, but when tested, became afraid and decided not to move forward in obedience to God. Now, we've said several times, if, if you remember, that the author of Hebrews is thinking back to Psalm 95. And I want to read for you three verses from Psalm 95 that are going to help us understand Hebrews 4. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. We are the people of His pasture. In other words, we are the sheep of His hand. So today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. If you hear His voice. If you hear the Word of God, don't harden your heart. I'm going to give you two main points. Two big ideas for us to learn the Scripture. The first one is, the Word of God is alive and active. The Word of God is alive and active. The second one is, the Word of God is precise in judgment and in discernment. The Word of God. Maybe you have the Word of God in print with you. You hold it. Maybe you have the Word of God electronically. You have it on your phone. We're going to talk about the full scope of the Word of God that we must hear and how it affects our striving. Let me, let me pray quickly for our learning the Bible and then we'll, we'll study these verses. Father God, I ask you to please give us ability to understand. Your Word is precious and it's valuable and we want to learn from it. We want to see it the way it shapes us and directs our paths. Father, we want this morning to understand what it means to hear your word. We want to understand what it means to strive. We know that this life is short, and we are headed toward a place promised. You've promised that either apart from you we are headed toward eternal judgment, or according to your instruction and in your will, we are heading toward eternal life. But we are all headed through this life, striving toward something. I pray that from this text of Scripture, from these few verses, you would grow us up in understanding about our striving. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's, let's do this first. Let's look at verses 12 to start and then see something true in verse 13. So, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the Bible says, 
The Word of God is living and active. And that's where I get this first point. The Word of God is alive and active. It's going to describe what that means to be alive and active. But look at verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. The Word of God is living and active. It's an important theme in Hebrews. In fact, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 1, right away in the first verse, we are told that the Word of God came to us by prophets. Talking to a Hebrew audience. Being reminded the Word of God was so important that it was delivered to us by prophets. The Word of God is an important theme throughout Hebrews. It's mentioned four times in the book of Hebrews, which might not sound like a lot, but it's mentioned more in the book of Hebrews than any other New Testament book except the book of Acts. In the book of Acts is listed 12 times, but in Hebrews it's second, four times. The Word of God matters to the author of Hebrews, and it matters to what we learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ according to this epistle. So, with the living Word in mind... The Word of God is alive and active. Stephen, in his ministry, calls it living oracles. Peter describes it as the Word of God which lives and abides in 1 Peter. The Word, in fact, is active in the sense that the Word of God speeds forward on its course to do what it's supposed to do. It's alive and it's active. It's speeding forward on its course toward its design by God. Listen to Isaiah 55, 11. The God of Israel says, My word goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I purpose and prosper in the things which I have sent it to do. So the word of God is active and it's alive. Christians in history have said things like this. Martin Luther said, Let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. Another Puritan named Thomas Watson said, By reading other books, the heart may be warmed, but by reading this book, the heart is transformed. The Word of God here is not simply compared to the canon, but the Word of God is hear what they heard in the wilderness and did not believe. The spies went in to spy out the land. They came back out. Ten of them said, ooh, it seems impossible. Two of the spies said, we believe the word of God that he'll give us the land of promise. And ten of the spies said, we do not believe. And the people aligned themselves with those who did not believe. The word of God came to them saying, I promise this. And they said, we do not believe. The word of God then here is that which fell on disobedient ears. The word of God reveals the condition of the human heart. It brings blessing to those who receive it in faith and pronounces judgment on those who dismiss it. The word of God. Here, just in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. 6, 5, having tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. 11, 3, the universe was created by the word of God. 
13, 7. Remember those leaders who speak to you the word of God. This is why we can say the word of God is living and active. It is doing as it has been sent forth to do. It's accomplishing its function. The word of God is profitable. There are differences, of course, between the first audience for us here, the Hebrews, or for Psalm 95, David's congregation, or for Exodus. There are differences between the first audience, and it's important for us to know that. We sometimes forget, don't we? Sometimes we have been guilty of saying things like reading the story of Daniel's trial and saying, you should dare to be a Daniel, as if the story of Daniel is really a story about you, not Daniel or God. Or David's Goliath giant, you should slay the giants that are in your life. Or Peter's venture to walk on water. As long as he kept his eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, all was well. And the moral of the story is, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, and you'll do better than Peter did. And that's not at all the moral of the story. Those stories all meant something to their original audience. However, because the Word is living and active, we should read the Bible as God's Word actively to us in the way the Holy Spirit is saying it. It's not merely relevant. It's authoritative. And it binds us. As Daniel, David, and Peter. It's timeless. It's living. Because it's the word of the timeless, active, and living God. One testimony of the active and living word comes to us from someone we probably know fairly well, at least in name, John Newton. John Newton was raised in a Christian home in the mid-18th century. He left home and joined the British Navy, but he ultimately fled. He deserted the Navy and went to Africa for a sinful reason. While in Africa, he becomes uh, a member of the slave trade. Ultimately, being so abused and oppressed in that terrible trade, he flees from them. He finds himself on a merchant ship. But because of his years of expertise in sailing, when the storm fell upon, or when the ship fell upon a severe storm, he made his way to the lower hulls of the ship and started running the pumps to keep water out of the boat and keep them from sinking. And he spent hours and hours, and from one day to the next, just methodically running the pumps and manning the pumps to keep the water out of the boat. While performing this task, which didn't require a lot of thought, just a lot of effort and time, while performing this task, the word of God that his mother had taught him before she had died when he was six flooded his mind. But this time, it came alive within him. It convicted him. And it brought him to repentance. And he cast himself on Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation. He had heard it before, but he had only heard it as a written testimony of something. It had not been to him at that time alive and active. But the Spirit of God working the living and active Word of God transformed Newton's life in a radical way. We know John Newton best for his work writing the hymn Amazing Grace. 
in which he pens these words. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Having been exposed as a child to the word, he would describe himself as blind to its living and active nature. This is what God does through his word. He takes those who are blind and gives them sight. God's word is living and active. So, keeping the bridge in mind, we remember what we've come from. We've come from a warning, which is stark. It's frankly unsettling. Be careful, lest you don't reach my rest because of your disobedience. And then we hear this promise. The God who said, be careful, is alive and active. And his word, be careful, or you won't enter my rest, is faithful word. It's sure. If we disobey, we will not enter his rest. God has spoken a warning. His rest can be missed, forfeited. His word, like himself, his promise, his warning, neither slumbers nor sleeps, but is alive and active. And the reality is, whatever you think about God will be directly tied to whatever you think about his word. And whatever you think about his word will be directly tied to what you think about God. You, you, you will not have a high view of God and a low view of his word. Nor vice versa. Have a high view of his word and a low view of God. If you regard both as living and active, you'll regard them highly. But if you regard them as trivial and somewhat irrelevant, you will regard them lowly. The Word of God, however, is active and living. And what the Word of God in this context has just said is, Beware! You will not enter my rest if you disobey. And that warning is nipping at my heels as I approach this bridge. I can feel the heat of that warning on the back of my neck. Because I am disobedient. As long as it is today, edify one another, lest you miss out. And I, I feel the heat of that and the danger of that. And I'm on the bridge, wanting to make my way more quickly up the incline, away from the severity of that warning. Let's hear more about the word. Is there good news in the Word? My second big point. First one is, Word of God matters. It's a big deal. It's alive and active. Second point, the Word is precise in judgment and discernment. The Word of God does stuff nothing else can do. It does. Listen, listen. Verse 12, second half of the verse. The Word of God, according to verse... 12, first part, is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joint marrow, 
discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sharpen a two-edged sword. I have uh, three or four swords in my office. I'm not exactly sure how that came to be. They're not meant to intimidate people. They're for decoration only. But sometimes, especially young people, will come in and say, is that a sharp sword? And I say, oh, not at all. You have no idea. You could not use that sword for any function other than decor. It would break and leave you helpless. This sword, however, is sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, you remember how I told you the Word of God matters to Hebrews? I only read part of that. Would you look back again to Hebrews chapter 1? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God spoke, there's the Word of God, to our fathers by the prophets. That's what I read for you earlier. Verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In old times, God spoke his word by prophets. In these times, he is speaking his word by his son. We are told in our text here that the Word of God plunges into division and discernment between three categories of things. Right? It's not hard to see three bullet points here. Soul and spirit. Joints and marrow. Thoughts and intentions. Uh, okay, what if we were to take turns inviting all of the congregation to explain the difference between the soul and the spirit? Okay, a few of you in the room will say, wait, wait, I, I've heard something about trichotomy and dichotomy. And the rest of you will say, I've never heard that and would rather not discuss it. And that's okay, we're not going to. But how many of you would say, I, I'm going to explain to everyone what the difference is between a soul and a spirit? It's hard to do. Or how many of you would say, in human anatomy, I can rightly describe to you the difference between a bone and bone marrow. Or in case you wanted to save the last one for yourself, you say, ah, save the last one for me. I'll describe the difference between thought and intention of the heart. <laughs> Here we go. What do we learn from those three things? That there are three things that are really difficult to distinguish between. And I think that's the author's intent. Not for us to say, wow, look at the Word of God. It does this to soul and spirit. It does this to joint. I think we're meant to read those three categories, soul, spirit, joint, marrow, thought, intention, and understand that there are things of mind, body, and soul that are hard to distinguish. In fact, I could argue that they're impossible for us to distinguish. How can they be then truly known? The condition of your soul or your spirit. The distinction between your joints or your bone marrow. Or your thoughts or your intentions of your heart. How can they be known? Well, the answer is in our text. By 
the Word of God. The Word of God probes these innermost recesses of our being and brings even our subconscious motive into light. I asked my daughter a question as we were driving in the car. And I said to her, I said, honey, why do you want that? It was a legitimate question. I wasn't sure why she wanted that. And it wasn't that what she wanted was bad. I wasn't trying to help her see it was sin. Why do you want that? I don't know. I just do. She didn't know. What were those secret subconscious intentions? She didn't know, and I certainly didn't know. How can we know? Here we're told that the Word of God can divide and make plain even thoughts and intentions. Now compare this to 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Listen as I read. In the coming day of the Lord, the Lord will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsel of the heart. When the Lord appears in his second coming, he will bring things to light that had maybe been dim or misunderstood. So here is the word making division in the hard to divide and doing discernments between thoughts and intentions of the heart. One scholar named E.K. Simpson has performed a lengthy survey of the adjective discerning. He has studied biblical language and that extra-biblical, the language of the culture, Aristotle refers several times to discernment or discernings. And Simpson concludes this. In all of the examples, discerning is described like the sifting process at work. You know, the sifting, we don't see it much in our culture, but the wheat and the chaff. And one of the processes of sifting is to go on an elevation where the wind can assist you and throw the wheat and chaff in the air and the lighter chaff will be blown off into a pile. I've only seen it in pictures. Maybe some of you have seen it in person. It is really remarkable. You start with one single pile and then simply toss the wheat and chaff and after hours, you have two distinct piles as the wind from the west, perhaps, moves the chaff into a pile and you still have your heavier grain in this pile. And you have two separate piles. That's discerning. It is to take what's in one pile, for all our perspective, and do the winnowing process, do the sifting process. And he says this, What winnowing breeze could compare with the gale force winds of the blowing word of God? Dividing and discerning precisely what is, even to those who can't tell themselves. So, in our context, you and I are hearing a warning. Strive forward so that you are not also guilty of the same disobedience they were guilty of. They heard the promise of God. And acted like it wasn't certain. How can we have assurance that we won't do the same? How far back in your week do you have to go to think about a sin you're ashamed of? Is it, is it before you walked in the room? Or is it since you've been here? 
Is it before you left your house? Since you woke up? How can we have assurance that we're not going to miss the rest because we've disobeyed? And the answer to that is in these verses, and it is the bridge, the Word. The Word, sharper than a two-edged sword, is rightly able to judge what is from what isn't. The Word. The sharp, two-edged sword. Can you see the sharp sword? Can you see it? You know what color it is? Do you know how many edges are sharpened? Is it a long, two-handled, claymore-type sword? Or is it more like a Roman short sword? Do you see it? Hmm. Let me propose a clarification from the language used that might help us. The word translated for us here, sword, can be appropriately translated sword. However, when the Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek, the same word that was used to describe the very small, petite knife, like a, like a scalpel, of which, according to the book of Joshua, circumcision was done, is the same word used here. So now, think about the delicate, precise work of circumcision and your two-edged sword that you pictured a moment ago. Probably not the same tool, right? So let's, let's think for a moment that this sharp two-edged device is in fact razor sharp and small for doing very particular work. It should be clear to us that this device is not so much a weapon of war, but rather a scalpel-like instrument for dividing and discerning almost indivisible things. So, here we are on our bridge, crossing the bridge, making the rise from the very sobering warning that we may miss the rest of God if we disobey. And saying, how can we not miss the rest? For we have disobeyed. And getting to the top and seeing a glimpse at what we studied last week, which is the great high priest. Look at verse 14, 15, 16. We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, even as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. How do we get to the point of drawing close to the throne of God, playing and singing and dancing like children under the throne of God, coming from the warning that says, watch out, disobedient, you don't get in. How do we get from one side of the river to the other side of the river? And the answer is the bridge. And the incline of the steep bridge says, beware. The Word of God is alive and active. He's not going to change his mind about warnings. And we climb the incline of the bridge. And we get to the top. And we hear 
there is this razor-sharp tool for doing precise work, even so much so that it can tell the difference between things that are hard to tell the difference between. You and somebody else. I remember when I was a teenager, I came to my dad once. I had had some friends that were not Christians. But I made a comment about how good I saw them try to be in their life. And I didn't understand at the time, came to understand it the more I conversed with them, that they had a hope of eternal blessing that was based on how they lived in this life. And there were numerous occasions where their goodness was better than my goodness. How could I ever hope to know which of us would arrive at our rest? Because from where I stood, they seemed, from man's perspective, to be more worthy of his rest than I was. How could I know who was headed to rest and who was headed to judgment? How could I do the precise identifying and discernings? I could not. Crossing the bridge from God's warning and looking forward to his rest, we crest the top of the bridge, and here we see the Word, our high priest. And my mind, from Hebrews 4, pushed me ultimately back into John 1. And verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. How can we have any hope of not receiving the same demise they received in the wilderness for their disobedience? Their doubt, their fear led them to disobedience. You and I have days just like that. Remember Hebrews chapter 2? Christ in his life and death is destroying the one who by the power of death, that is the devil, delivered all those who, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Remember? I live fearfully. It's fearful in the positive, it's fearful in the negative. It's fearful, and I better not do that. It might be my demise. Or it's fearful that I better enjoy all of that because I don't know how much longer I can. But through fear of death or being held in slavery, Jesus comes to us in our fear of death and delivers us. What I want you to understand is when we talk about the Word, we talk about it in many applications. It's the word that God spoke to prophets. It's the word that God once and for all delivered from himself. And it's the word that is the very exact imprint of God. It's Jesus Christ. Christ is the sharp scalpel, living and active. Christ performs in all of his true people 
a distinction of identity. I walk with my teenager friend, and I can't tell every day which of us is heading for eternal rest. But Jesus performs the identifying work of distinguishing between the two. That is my covenant child. That is not. I didn't know. He knows. So Christ is the sharp, living, active scalpel. He is the one performing the work of precision, circumcising the hearts of his people. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. No one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly. My friend, when I was a teenager, was not a covenant person of God because of their outward obediences. No one's a Jew who's one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward or physical. A Jew, the, the true covenant people of God is being used here, is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. Therefore, the one who would say, I am of these people, does not praise himself, but praises God. I don't know all the author's intentions in these verses. But it seems clear to me that the point the author is making on this bridge is this. Although the Exodus generation failed to enter rest, Christians will arrive safely home because of the work of Jesus, the Logos. The work in their lives that marks them and identifies them as the covenant people of God. So in this text, we cross a bridge. It is a steep bridge. It's not a wide river. But the construction of this wooden bridge is steep. We climb one side and we descend down the other. And here's what I think is true as we behold the bridge in verse 11, 12, and 13, hearing a chapter and a half of warning, climbing over the precipice of the bridge and making our descent and seeing verses 14, 15, and 16. From the warning side, it's really hard for me to see any hope. But from the hope side, it's really hard for me to see that there was ever any danger. Before climbing the bridge to make it to the other side, all I could hear was warning. I could feel nipping at my heels. I could feel the heat of it on the back of my neck. But once arriving over at it and reading, the word will precisely identify who belongs to God and who does not. And your character conduct on any given day might not make it easy for you to tell. But the word will. And what is true will be cut straight by the provision of these are mine. And Christ pleading, interceding for us by his own blood. From the other side of the bridge, it's hard for me to even imagine that I was in danger. So what about verse 11? 
What do we do with the verb? Let us therefore strive. When you leave here and you share a meal and you leave the room, strive. Please, strive. Try harder. Do better. I mean that. But maybe not the way you think. Let us therefore strive this call to action. I would be remiss if I didn't give you the instruction of Scripture to walk in truth. For it, I want you to listen to Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Brothers, Christians, those rightly identified by the precision of Christ, know that you have not yet arrived. road rage might be waiting for you on the way home and it might be in your car know that you have not yet arrived all that will be yours in Christ and his everlasting rest is not yet but it is coming so do this Verse 14, Philippians 3, 14. Forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God. Press on toward the goal, which is Jesus Christ. Which is Jesus Christ. Strive when you leave here. Do better run faster toward Jesus Christ. Not toward trying to become your own precision-identifying scalpel. I can tell today I did good. I belong in the rest. Don't strive toward that. Strive toward Jesus Christ. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Let me pray. Father, our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Blessed Redeemer, now and forever. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, please.